Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're going to continue the thought that we had started last week, Acts chapter 13, starting in verse number 13. Uh, remember what we had discussed in chapter 13 and 14, really, uh, the gospel is really going on the move, as, as the, uh, the, the title suggests, the, the church on the move. I don't have any notes for you all today. Uh, I've been out of town the past few days. I, for the past 18, 19 years, I've gone to this uh, it's kind of a preacher, church guy, uh, fellowship slash golf outing in Indiana, and uh, just got back literally late last night, early this morning, about 1.30. My flight was delayed a little bit. Uh, so I'm on three energy drinks right now, so I'm a little jittery. Um, but I don't know what's going to come out. Hopefully it's gospel and it's good. Uh, so anyway, bear with me here. Um, but anyway, there's no notes for you all today. Uh, I encourage you to take notes still, but there's no notes. Uh, there's one slide, I think, at the very end of the service uh, this morning. Remember, in Acts chapter 13, as I talked about last week, and 14, it's really Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And we kind of introduced that with you know, the church in Antioch there, a very mission-minded church and really really the central hub for missionary movement in this early church culture had sent out Paul and Barnabas to, to go out and do the work and spread the gospel far and abroad. And they had a member of their team, uh, John or John Mark, that was with them. And as we see in the very first verse of chapter 13, verse number 13, look what it says. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, when they left Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. Now there's not much that is said here, but when you study other passages of Scripture and Acts and even others uh, that Paul wrote, we find out a little bit more detail of what happened or actually we don't know exactly what happened, why he left, but it really rubbed Paul the wrong way. And I'm going to hit on that here in just a minute. Um, but let me go ahead and start with a word of prayer, kind of maybe calm me down a little bit from those energy drinks, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into it. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we love you. I pray that you'd help me this morning to focus on you, focus on your word. And Lord, I, I've been encouraged just uh, standing in the back listening to the testimonies and then uh, listening to the, the powerful music this morning that we've had, just a great spirit of worship. And Lord, I pray that you would be with our church. Lord, we're thankful for the kids that got saved, first and foremost. Uh, we're thankful for the uh, couple of the families that are going to be joining uh, today uh, that have gone through our, our Connect class, and we've got a few more to finish up in the next couple weeks. And Lord, we're just excited about what you're doing. God, I pray that you be with the many that are out of town on vacation. I know it's summertime, and I pray that you would just bless them. And I pray that you would just continue to help us grow, help us to move forward, and help us to really... Find what we need to find in your word, understanding that it is written to a specific group of people, but there are many applications to us as a church today. And I pray that you'd help us to be a mission-minded church, not in the sense of that we're always trying to give money to others to do the work, but we ourselves are living on mission, that we ourselves are doing what you have called us to do, that you help us realize that we are a sent group of people. We have been sent out to, we've been commissioned to fulfill the gospel to the ends of the world. And it starts here in our own community, in our own Jerusalem and Judea. God, I pray that you'd help me first and foremost as the pastor, as the, uh, the under-shepherd under you to help lead this flock, to encourage them to do what you have called us to do. And Lord, as we study your word today, and we study Paul's message to the Jews here, 
I pray that you'd help us to learn what we need to learn. And again, help us to understand where our identity lies. It lies in you, not in anything around us, but only in you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask a kind of an interesting question, and it's not the energy drinks, it's just a, it's an interesting question. So some of you guys can help me with this, I think, I hope. Um, kind of scared. But what does it mean to you to be a Texan? I hear some chuckles. What does it mean to you to be a Texan? Venetia? You got to be born here? Okay, that's fine. I mean, Violet? To not let people mess with your state? Okay. Is that a, first of all, Venetia, was that like a slight at me? Is, <laughs> I just got that, like, you're not one of us. Get out, you know? No, I, I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. That's why, I, you know, we are a quarter Texan. Yeah. Anyway, we have one of us that is born here. Um, like Violet said, you know, don't mess with us or whatever. Uh, what else? What does it mean to you to be a Texan? Anybody else want to just venture that? David, yeah. Uh, give up allegiance in any previous states if you move to Texas. Give up previous states <laughs> if you move to Texas. Okay, all right. I mean, this is interesting. There may or may not be any validity to this. It's just a question. It may, may go with it. Um, yes, Billy? Community Fellowship Texans Stick Together. Community Fellowship Texans Stick Together? Only Texans? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Have you lived in any other state, Kevin? Yeah, I didn't think so. Kind of like I've never had anything but apple, but only apple. Anyway, side note. Rodney. Proud of the heritage. Proud. Let's just stop there. Okay, no, so good. <laughs> Keep going on. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and the history of how Texas became. Yeah. It's, it's the only state that was its own country at one point. It's true. It's true. Proud of the history, the heritage. And it's the most I've gotten some of you guys to talk in a long time. I can't get you guys under to give me a good definition of the gospel, but hey, I know Texas. Bless God. Yeah, Texas. Marcus. Friday Night Lights. Yes, yes, football, right? I do know that. What else? What else? Put us on the other hand. Julie? To truly be a Texan, you can't be born in the North. I feel like that's a slight towards Michael Eaton. He was born north of me. I was born south of him. You just talking about north of the Mason-Dixon or north north of the Red River? Oh, okay, okay. Just just making sure. All right. I mean, before I continue, who was not born in Texas that is here today? Ooh, you got a good amount. Whoa. And that's why the church can't grow because of that attitude, Christina. Get out. You're not, you said it with them. I mean, mother, son, like, yeah, mirror image, mirror image. All right, let's do a couple more. Justin, what does it mean to be a Texan? Just a pride thing? Yes. <laughs> Again, there may or may not be any validity to this question. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> Bigger and better. All right. Maybe maybe one more. Anybody else? Anybody else have something? Nobody else? David, got another one? Yeah. Real long road trips. Real long road trips. That's true. That's true. 
What's the farthest point? Like 12, 13 hours probably from point to point? Anybody know that? 15? That's just insane. Anyway, uh, let me ask another question. Um, why, why is it, and some of this is kind of stems from a devotion that I read last night, but why is it that a lot of people have knowledge of things, but they don't fully apply the knowledge that they have? It's kind of a deeper question, but why is it that people have a lot of knowledge of things, but they don't fully apply the knowledge that they have? Anybody want to venture a guess on that one? Tasha? Easier to know things, harder to do them. Okay, very good. What else? Let us know hand. Mike? It takes, it takes change to apply the things, so a lot of times we're comfortable in what we're already doing. Yeah, it takes change to apply. We're very comfortable in what we're doing. What else? Why, why is it that so many have a knowledge of things but don't fully apply what they have knowledge of? Michael? That's good. That's good. Deep right there. See, that's a northerner. Deep theological truths. That'll preach right there. Yes, Ryan. I mean, there it is. We need to get a stool and let him come up and just pour out some wisdom. Maybe in EQ time today. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> that's good. That's funny. Anybody else? Why is it that uh, we have a knowledge, we have, many of us have knowledge of things, but we don't fully apply it? Too much knowledge makes you afraid. That's good. That's good. Me and then Chuck. You don't want to be known as a nerd at school. Okay. Chuck? Focus. Hmm, that's good. Focus the difference between the micro and the macro. That's, that's really good. I like that. Um, I was reading a devotion last night on the plane, kind of trying to put some stuff together, you know, for the message this morning. That's kind of what some of these questions have, have stemmed from. But, you know, in Matthew 18, it talks about, you know, being, I, I just want to look back there really quick. I, this isn't where we're going to be this morning, but just kind of a brief brief thought before we kind of jump into the meat of the message. Um, but in, in Matthew chapter 18, you know, there's so many things that Christ was, was teaching his disciples and, and many of these things. And um, you, you think about the story there where the, the, the person, the, the servant had that great debt. How many remember that story? Well, the servant had that great debt and the master just forgave him of the debt. And then what did that servant initially do after he was forgiven this enormous debt. Anybody remember the rest of that story? Yeah. He went to the person that owed him money and said, hey, where's my money, basically. Now, when you, when you compare apples to apples, oranges, whatever, like the debt that the guy had been forgiven was astronomical. I mean, if you put it in dollars today, it would be like millions and millions of dollars, the debt that he owed. And then he went, after he had been forgiven of that, hey, it's wiped clean, you don't owe me anything. He then goes and maybe it's a couple thousand, a couple thousand versus a couple million. Huge difference, right? And he goes and basically demands what he thinks is his. Now, in some ways, he never got it, did he? He had just been forgiven. 
He didn't deserve that. He had been indebted to some, someone else and something else, been forgiven of it, and then didn't take what was done to him to someone else. And, and I wrote this down. There is no way that any of us who bear any concept of what God has forgiven us in Christ could ever cop an un, ungenerous spirit towards someone else in need of our grace and mercy. If we do, it could only come from absolutely forgetting or misunderstanding the real weight that He has lifted off our shoulders by declaring our sin forgiven. And listen to this. Those who truly believe the gospel show it by becoming like the gospel. Saturated in His grace, we have only one real response to make, to live it out. And I wanted to start that way this morning because... What the Texas question is just kind of a fun thing, but here's the truth: a lot of us have a lot of knowledge of Scripture, and you say my, my, my knowledge of Scripture might be limited, but we know some things about the Bible, right? I think everyone in here probably knows something about the Bible. But the truth is, do we fully apply it? Most of us would have to say no, and myself included. And, and what we've been what we've been trying to really hammer home for man the better part of a year or so is understanding what the gospel is and what the gospel means, and then trying to live out the gospel, understanding that it's, it's more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is it. But it is so much deeper than that. And when we're fully saturated in the gospel, when we're fully saturated in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we can't help but show it to other people, right? And that's really what I want to get from not just this series sent, but every series so far in the book of Acts, really, to help us to understand some, some things about Scripture, to have a knowledge of them. But knowledge, I mean, I think Michael hit it. You know, we think knowledge is power, but really it's no power if we're not applying it. And I could give the, the most eloquent of messages, which I don't most of the time, but I can give the most eloquent of messages, and you can be like, wow, I am so amazed that at the knowledge that that guy has, which is not much, but you can be so amazed at the knowledge that I portray, but then if you take it and do nothing with it, is that any good for you? No. I mean, same is true, you go to school. If you go to school, you receive the knowledge of, of what the books and the teachers are trying to teach you, but then if you don't apply yourself on the test and remember and try to apply the principles learned, you're not going to do very well. I mean, the same is true in the Christian life. We are supposed to apply what God has given us, and really more importantly, uh, understanding our identity in Christ, apply the truths that we uh, have been validated by Jesus, we are accepted by Jesus, redeemed by Jesus, forgiven by Him, and therefore called not to live for ourselves, but called to live for Him. And the reason I'm saying all this is because Again, here we are starting really the first missionary journey, the first missionary endeavor uh, from the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians to ever live. And he is reaching out into the world and, and trying to do what he could do. Now, again, amazing man of God. Spent a lot of time studying God's Word. But more importantly, he knew who he was in Christ. And he knew that God had called him. God had sent him out. Not, not everyone is going to be a Paul. Not everyone is going to be a missionary. Not everyone is going to be an evangelist. But all of us should reach out to those around us. Shouldn't we? Yes. All of us should be the church on the move because the church is not just the building. What is the church? It's the people. 
all of us. And, and really, as we, as we break, you know, you kind of think about you come into a huddle and like, all right, you know, put all your hands in. All right, break. You go out. And then you go out and do what you're supposed to do, right? I think of that in sports that you come in, you, you, the coach gives you a couple tips. All right, now I want you to go do it. Now, if you don't do it, it's not going to help your team. So think about that in relation to the church. If the principles are given, we break and then don't apply the principles. Is it really going to help the team? Is it really going to help the church grow? Is it really going to help the church go forward? You know, what we saw last week and the week before that the church has been sent out. And there's over, I think, 40 references or 40 different cities that are named in Acts that are just the gospel is going to explode to. And, and we, we saw last week that the first, or um, yeah, I think it was last week, that the, the first stop on that journey was Cyprus. And just a quick review of that, in sharing the gospel, we need to understand that some people are going to be open to it. Which means as we share our testimony and, and try to help people understand who Jesus is, some people are going to be open to it. They're going to want to, want to receive it. They're going to want to hear more, but some people are going to oppose it. Some people are going to be flat out like, you know what? I don't want anything to do with that Jesus of yours. And we met an individual like that. This sorcerer who was really in the occult and, you know, false uh, uh, teaching and false doctrine, this bar Jesus, this Elemis, completely opposed Christianity, completely opposed Jesus Christ. I mean, his name, bar Jesus, son of Jesus, basically, you know, he was opposite of that. He was really the son of the devil. We're going to meet some that oppose it, but also there's going to be some that embrace it. Sergius Paulus saw what Paul, uh, through the Holy Spirit, did, how uh, he had uh, inflicted, and it was really God that did it, but he inflicted blindness upon him. He was already spiritually blind, now he was physically blind, and, and he saw that, that, you know, this is the true God, and he embraced the message of the gospel, and he received it, and he got saved. And now the, the story continues, though, as they go out. Verse 13, now when Paul and his company, now this is an interesting shift. You know, we, we talked about last week that his name has kind of been changed to Paul. It's been Saul before. This is kind of what we know going forward, the Apostle Paul. But now before it was always Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul. Paul has kind of become the leader of the group. Now when Paul and his company... Loose, when they left Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, or John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Again, we don't know all of why he left, but here's a clear truth. Kind of, this is all introduction. The team was rocked by a relational conflict. You ever been rocked by a relational conflict in your life? It's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, it, it happens in our marriages, in our relationships, and an important truth to understand is that we need to be ready for conflict while trying to live on mission. And when you do deeper study in the book of Acts and other books as well, you find that Paul wanted absolutely nothing to do with John Mark anymore. But Barnabas later, he brought them back together. And, and then Paul, you know, finally admitted that, you know, again, he was useful, but he didn't want anything to do with John Mark for, for whatever reason, maybe maybe he was lazy. Maybe the journey was too hard. It was too difficult. It was more than he expected. Look, there's a lot of reasons why people stop living on mission, isn't there? There's a lot of reasons why people stop living the Christian life like they are called to live it. You know, maybe one of those reasons was there for, for John Mark. Now, just a, a quick backstory as they are 
uh, making this journey. I don't have a, 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 a map with you know, good pictures here in front of you today. But as they're making this journey, this is a very arduous, very difficult trek. Very difficult journey. As they are going towards another Antioch, there's a lot of Antiochs in that culture, uh, kind of like, you know, there's a lot of Decaters in America. Um, but they're traveling from Perga to Antioch or Pisidian Antioch. Uh, one, one commentary wrote this. He said, Antioch lay some 100 miles north across the Tarsus mountain range. So as they docked there, then they had to travel 100 miles across mountains. And remember, there was no car, there was no bus to drive. This is all mostly on foot. The route was barren, often flooded by swollen mountain streams and very notorious for its bandits, its robbers, which even the Romans had difficulty bringing under control. Antioch itself was in the highlands, some 3,600 feet above sea level. And again, we have more modern technology and better roads than they had a couple thousand years ago. So try to imagine that in your mind, if you would. The bandits, a lot of times, these robbers would fall upon the travelers, beat them, rob them, leave them for dead. And fear of that is possible, possibly a reason why John Mark left. You know, this was obviously a very perilous place. Paul had to traverse this place to continue his ministry. And from other scriptures, we find that Paul, as he's making this journey, he also has some kind of physical illness. So imagine, imagine any kind of physical illness and then making a big trek across the mountains. I mean, would anyone like that if you're not in a car? If you've got a hike and you're, I mean, you're just flat out sick? None of us probably. You wouldn't like that. So imagine, you know, Paul has some kind of physical illness, physical infirmity, and he is making this very difficult trek. He could have easily stopped. And the reality is most of us, we probably would have stopped, right? I mean, I, I know I probably would have. I'm going to find, a, you know, Holiday Inn Express of that day and stay there, eat all the cinnamon rolls I can, wait until I get better. Then I'll make the journey once they have roads and cars. Uh, that's not what Paul did. Paul continued on because he knew that God had called him, that God had sent him on this mission, and that he needed to do whatever he could. And really, what we see here is that Paul was willing to do whatever he could to reach people with the radical power of the gospel. And that's really what we're trying to do at Eagle Drive. We're trying to reach people with the radical power of the gospel. But he was willing, listen, to go to hard-to-reach places in extreme locations to do what needed to be done. And really, this is showing us another aspect of grace on full display. We see the grace that grace enabled endurance uh, that must reside within the heart of a gospel-driven, spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting child of God that is fully living on mission. And this region of Pisidian is the Roman province of Galatia. Paul had already been preaching, but Luke points out one particular sermon to this Jewish audience as we get to in uh, verse 14 and 15, as, as many of the Jewish leaders, and really this was the common place, as Paul went to a city, he started with the Jews. And he would tell us that later that, hey, I have to bring the gospel first to the Jews, but it's not also, only for the Jews, it's also for the Gentile, the Greek. Excuse me, look at verse number 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So he began to teach. And after the reading of the law and the prophets... 
The rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on, hey, we want you to, to speak to us. And they're a good reason because Paul had studied before he was a Christian under Gamaliel. So uh, they knew of this Gamaliel and they probably knew of Saul. So, hey, I, I, we want to hear what you have to say. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. So he is starting his message. And what we have is, is really... Uh, Almost every commentary agrees on this. We have three points in this message. We have his introduction, his proclamation or the message itself, and then we have the application. And the introduction is this. It's the preparation of the coming of Christ. So he is trying to help the Jewish audience understand who Jesus is by going back to the Old Testament. Now stay with me right here because it's kind of a history lesson for the first few minutes before we really dive deeper into this. In Acts chapter 13, verse number 16, uh, then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, men of Israel, and you that fear God, give audience. The God of, the, of this people of Israel chose our fathers, and really, this is great, uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 times, I believe, in this passage, uh, Paul is talking about God and what God did and who God is. This text is utterly saturated with God. Verse number 17, the God of this people of Israel, so he knows his audience, and that's very important. He knows who he is speaking to. The God of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manner in the wilderness. Then it's kind of going to the story of the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses leading them out. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And there's a story of really Joshua. Really, the message that Paul is going to be preaching here is really very similar to Peter's message at, at um, uh, Pentecost. Also very similar to Stephen's message there in Acts chapter 7, where he is trying to help the Jewish audience understand who God is and that God has always had a plan for them to understand that there is a Messiah that was the Son of God, understand that, and draw them to that. It wasn't about the law. The law was just pointing out their human condition, their need for a Savior. Verse number 20, And after that he gave unto them judges. So again, he's, he's going through the Old Testament history about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. So they wanted a king because they wanted to be like everyone else. So you know what? God did that. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them another one. Who was it? David, to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony. And said, I have found David and the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill my will. And of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. So the Jews knew that there was a Messiah coming, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was just a good teacher, maybe a, a prophet, a good man, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul is trying to help go back to the Old Testament to help them understand God's point in history and what he was trying to do. 
to the redemptive story. Verse 24, when, when John had first preached, now he's going to talk about John the Baptist. When John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all people of Israel, really before Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist, he was prominent. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, whom think ye that I am? I'm not he. I'm not the one that God was pointing to. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. I'm not worthy of this Jesus fellow. So we see the, the introduction of the message. But everything in this message, in this introduction, that Paul is giving us is pointing to the arrival of the son of David, the promised Messiah, Jesus. Let's continue on. Verse 26, what we get to is the message. Verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. So now what he is doing in the proclamation of the message, he is pointing to the death and resurrection of Christ. And this is an important concept to understand. You know, pointing people back to the Old Testament to point them to Christ and their need of a Savior. And that's what he's doing here. Verse 27, for they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they knew him not. So now he's putting it on them. Remember like Stephen when he did it and when he just kind of put it at them? Hey, you guys, you had Jesus in your presence and you didn't know who he was. You ignored him. You rejected him. Nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day. They, are, they have fulfilled them in, the, in the condemning him. And really what he is getting to, and I want you to understand this. Most of you understand what the Scriptures say because every time you come here for Sabbath, the Scriptures are read. He is basically telling them, you have a knowledge, but you're not applying it. Kind of like many of us today. We have a knowledge of what God wants us to do, but we're not applying what He wants us to do. He continues on. Verse number 28, And though they found no cause of death in Him, hey, He shouldn't have been put to death because there was no fault. He was guiltless. Yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. Your own people in Jerusalem said, let's kill this guy. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, all that was written in the prophets, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and they laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. So now he is telling them what they did, the death of Jesus, but then he's also pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, which is important for all of us. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen of many days of them. This is the great thing about Scripture. It doesn't just say that Jesus raised from the dead. It also points to the many countless witnesses that saw him. Well over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. Now, one or two, you can dispute a claim. But if you're going in court and standing before trial, it's very easy to dispute a couple witnesses. But if 500 people came to your side and said, this is what I saw, it'd be hard for the judge to say, you know what, I don't believe that. And that's kind of what's going on here. And Scripture continues to point that out to us. And that's what Paul is saying here. He was seen of witnesses. And we declare unto you glad tidings that how that... The promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, in that He hath raised up Jesus again. I'm telling you, Jesus, He's not in the tomb. He is alive. 
as it is also written in the second Psalm. So now he is going back to uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 16. He then takes him to Isaiah chapter 55. And as concerning uh, that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on the wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another Psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, this wasn't talking about David. This was talking about Jesus. Even David was pointing to Jesus. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep. He, he died and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption, the corruption of death, that his body decayed. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. There is no decay because Jesus isn't in the grave. You go up and dig any, any tombstone that has a body in there, there's going to be decay, right? That's what happens when death comes. But you go to the tomb where Jesus was laid, there is no decay because there is no body because he is risen. And that's really what Paul is trying to get them to understand. The resurrection is the verification. You know, this passage, really, it's, it's identity as well, but Paul is dealing with the identity of Jesus. He is God's son. And this sermon is showing the people that David wasn't referring to himself, but he was pointing to Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. And this audience, they, they know the scriptures. They've heard them read every Sabbath, but again, they're not understanding them. They're not applying them. Verse 37, again, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Again, pointing to Jesus. And now we get into the final point of his message and where it really wraps up for us today, the application. And in the application, here's what Paul is trying to hit home in the next couple of verses. The promise of forgiveness and justification for all who trust in Christ. Now, this is very important for this Jewish audience, and it's important for the audience today. There were also Gentiles that were here, but look at verse number 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Who is the man that he is talking about? Anybody? Jesus. I heard it whispered over here. Jesus. Through this Jesus, he is offering you forgiveness of sins. Verse 39. And by him, all that believe are justified. Now that's important. We're going to talk about that for just a minute. I mean, it would take me weeks and months to really dive deeper into justification, all that it is. But all that believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross and at the tomb are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So here, here's the crux of the message. And it's a very powerful statement. I like what Ray Stedman said on this passage. He said, here were men who had honored the law of Moses. They thought the Ten Commandments were the greatest word that God had ever written. They were trying their best to live up to them, but you know what? No one can live up to every law. If I were to post two laws, there's no one in this room that could obey that law or those two laws every day for the rest of your life. You would fail. You would fall short. And that, that's, that's the crux of that that he was trying to get him to understand. It's not that the Ten Commandments aren't, are just useless, but... The law was never meant to redeem. 
You see, the law really, it, it condemned the reader because it pointed out their need of something else. It pointed out their need of a Savior. It showed them that you're not worthy. You can't achieve it. And I think there's, what, something like 613 laws in the Old Testament system. How could you live up to 613 rules? I mean, imagine that, kids, if your parents, all right, we're going to have 613 rules you have to live by every day. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you're going to fail. Like, probably in the first five minutes, you're going to miss something up. And that's what the Jews were trying to do, trying to live up to this standard that they could never live up to, and that was never meant for them to live up to. It was only there to point them to something else. And here's the truth that Paul is getting at, and stay with me here. Even at their best, they still failed. Even at our best, we still fail. And Paul is driving this nail home to them that you'll never make it on those terms. You'll never live up to that standard. You will never find acceptance by God in that way by trying to live up to a list of rules. And the same is true for us today. Living up to a standard of the law will never help us. It will only condemn us because we can't fulfill them no matter how hard we try. Now, it sounds bad, but here's where the good news of the gospel comes in. Paul is telling them, hey, here is the good news of the gospel. You can have forgiveness of sins. You don't have to work because the work has already been done. The price has already been paid. Imagine... Uh, you know, it's a horrible illustration, but imagine going somewhere and you're going to, to pay for something and someone's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's already been paid. Okay. It wouldn't be awesome if like, you know, you go to buy a car and like, nope, someone already paid for it. Okay. Thank you. Can I choose a color? Can I choose a car? Uh, I, again, I know it's a horrible illustration, but in, in some ways that gives us a picture. You go to do something and like, nope, it's already been done. You don't owe anything. No, 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 no. I have to pay something. I have to do something. Nope, it's done. But, but no, I have to give something. I mean, $100, bucks, $200, or 1000 I mean, what, what do you want? Do I need to do a payment plan? No, you don't get it. It's already been done. And that's what salvation is. There is nothing you can do because it's already been done by Jesus Christ. And this is it. That's what Paul is dealing with. You can have forgiveness of sins and it's only through Christ. You see, God has found a way, listen, to accept mankind, not because of his own merits, but based on the merits of someone else. God has found a way to accept mankind, even though man cannot be good enough in himself. And that old, the only way uh, to, 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 to find acceptance is through this man, Jesus Christ. You know, for most of us, this isn't anything new. But this was earth-shattering for this Jewish audience. Paul is telling them, you can be justified, which is really declared righteous in God's sight through Jesus. And look, the law was insufficient, unable to set anyone free. The law only condemns the sinner, doesn't justify a sinner. And the idea of justification is a prominent theme for Paul in the book of Romans. And again, it would take months to dive into that. But here's the truth. We cannot earn righteousness. We're not good enough. But we can receive justification. 
You know, one common definition of justification is this. It's that idea of just as if I never sinned. And that's true, but it even goes deeper. You know, there's more to justification than that. It's just as if I never sinned, but it's also just as if I always obeyed. And that's what God did. Just as if I never sinned, but it's also just as if I always obeyed and did what I was supposed to do. You know, people try everything to get rid of their guilt, don't they? They try therapy, they try exercise and diets and medicine and many other things. You know, some of these things can treat symptoms. But they won't heal a person of their real problem. And you think about the problem in the hearts of mankind. We can go to a therapist, we can get medication, we can do exercise and diets to try to remove our guilt. But you know the only only thing that's going to remove it is to be forgiven, but also to be justified. You see, what, what Jesus did, listen to me, I'm almost done, very important. It wasn't like he was saying, you know what, hey, you know what, your sins are no big deal. You know, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. That's not what Jesus did. You see, in the cross of Jesus, God poured out all his justice upon him. And in that cross, in the agony and the anguish of it, the world can see a picture of how faithfully God does obey his own laws and does carry out his own justice to the nth degree. And yet the wonder of it is this, because of that, God's love is freed to be poured out to us. And this is the amazingness of the gospel. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you have to do because someone else has already done it. And if you believe then you are justified through him. So the point is to the audience of the Jewish and the Gentiles that were there this day, stop trying. Stop trying to achieve a standard that you can never achieve. Stop struggling. Stop working on your own. Stop trusting in anything else. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. And then Paul closes out this section of the message, verse 41 and 42, Behold, you despisers, and really what he is doing is he is referencing back to Habakkuk. We did a series in Habakkuk at the first of this year. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Remember that where basically Habakkuk is pouring his heart out to God and, and God is telling him, I'm going to use the wicked Chaldean, the Babylonians, to punish, to judge the Jew. In Habakkuk's mind, that made absolutely no sense. Just like it wouldn't make sense to us today. God is going to use a wicked, wicked, uh, abominable nation, a Gentile nation, to punish his own people. Look at verse 41. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no wise believe. Again, he's referencing Habakkuk. Though a man declared unto you. Even though God was telling Habakkuk, he still didn't believe it. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. So the Jews basically said, you know what? I don't, I don't get this. I don't believe it. I don't like it. We're done with it. But, but that, that, that passage there in verse 41, this is key. Please stay with me here. Why would God use the wicked Chaldeans to punish the Jews? You know, here's where God's grace is on full display. 
God used the Gentiles to punish the Jews, but now you know what he's doing? He's using the Jews to save the Gentiles. That's pretty awesome when you think about it. You might not get excited, but I do. If you're here today and you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So you should be excited that God used the Jew to save the Gentile. And here's the message for us today. There's more verses, but we'll get to that next week. Here's the message. We live in a culture that is so desperately craving acceptance and validation, don't we? And what Paul was getting at cuts deep within many of us. That you can work and work and work and work and work and work to achieve a standard of success, to achieve validation, to achieve acceptance, but no matter how hard you work, you're never going to achieve acceptance. You only find acceptance in Jesus Christ. You can't earn righteousness, but you can receive the justification that He offers through the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Paul is trying to address to this Jewish audience. And you know what? Most of the Jews there that day said, forget you, really. We, we, don't, we don't believe you. But the Gentiles were there, wow. You mean God wants to save us? You mean God sent a Messiah that's already come and we don't have to do anything? All we have to do is accept it? All we have to do is receive it and it's ours? It says the next week that it was full. The whole town came out because they wanted to hear this message. Imagine next week, the whole city of Decatur comes into the auditorium here. Now, we wouldn't have any room for them. Ryan would be freaking out, trying to get everyone connected, right? <laughs> Didn't have enough iPads for that. Exactly. But that's what happened, that the whole town came together because, wait, we don't have to do anything? It's already been done. All we have to receive or do is receive the message. And, and here's the key truth, and really it's the only slide I have today. You cannot achieve your identity, but you can receive it. And what I'm talking about is the identity that we have in Jesus Christ, not the identity that culture tells us. We can't achieve it. There's nothing we can do to achieve our identity, but we can receive it. Look, listen, whatever defines you forces you to run from whatever threatens you. A gospel identity invites you to stop running from and start running to. And here's what this boils down to this morning. In the gospel, we find many things. The gospel isn't just the way to begin. The gospel is the way we grow. It's not just where we start, it's where we're going. And the gospel is the only thing that brings acceptance. And that's what Paul was getting at this day. That we can be justified in him, through him, because of him. In Christ, there is nothing you can do that would make Christ love you anymore. And there is nothing you have done to make him love you any less. Let me say that again, because you need to get this. In Christ, if you are saved, if you are a child of God, there is nothing you can do that would make Christ love you anymore. You see, we're still doing this today. We're still trying so hard to work to achieve his acceptance. <clears throat> but if you're saved, you're already accepted. He loves you unconditionally. And there's nothing you can do that's going to make him love you any less. Nothing. 
And again, we struggle with this. Well, I'm a failure in God's eyes. If you're a child of God, no, you're not. You are accepted in Him. And again, it's taking me years to understand this. And here's the reality, and I'm not trying to be mean, but most of you in here still don't get it. I've had many of you that I've talked, oh yeah, I get it. But you're not living like you get it. You're still living trying to work for things when the work has already been done. So now now what the time is, it's time to live understanding that we have been accepted. Understanding that we are secured and that we have significance. That's the meat of this. That's what Paul is getting at here. That in Christ, if you trust Him as your Savior, we had three teens trust Him as their Savior at camp. Teens, you are accepted. doesn't matter what culture says as you grow up. You are accepted because of Him. You are secured because of Him. You have significance because of Him. And it's not just for them, it's for us today as well. (coughs) You can't achieve it, but you can receive it.